Hey, friends. It's so nice to be back and talking with you. I've really missed you all. Over the past couple of months we've been gone, it's really meant so much to see you telling your friends and family, to see you following us on TikTok, on Instagram, and to hear your feedback on the show. But by far the question that you've been asking us the most is, where is season two? And I promise you, we have been working on it. Some of you may know and remember that outside of podcasting, I'm a full-time wedding photographer. And honestly, we are coming out of one of the busiest times of the year for photographers in my area. So I really care a lot about the quality of the episodes I'm putting out there. And I don't want to put out something that I didn't give my full time, energy, and attention. So I want you to know season two is underway, but it takes time to tell these stories in the right way. And what I can promise you is it'll be worth the wait. But I do want to thank you for your patience and give you a little something to listen to in the meantime. So that's why I decided today I'm going to drop one of our Patreon exclusive conversations in our main feed. For those of you who might not know, Patreon is our online community where we release bonus content and behind the scenes for folks who want to support the show. Signing up costs as little as $5 a month, and it's currently the only way that we're able to sustain this work. Because even though this show is free for you to listen to, it's definitely not free to create. So today, I'm going to give you a little peek behind the curtain as what you can expect as a member of the Patreon community. And it's a good one because I had the opportunity to chat with award-winning poet and author Olivia Gatt. And what led me to Olivia initially was the candidness and vulnerability that she approached her relationship to true crime and her poetry collection, Life of the Party. With each poem, Olivia explores how true crime shapes the experiences of so many women by shedding lights on the ways it's impacted her own. In addition to Life of the Party, Olivia is also the author of another poetry collection called New American Best Friend, as well as a forthcoming novel, Whoever You Are, Honey. Olivia and I had the chance to talk about the ethics of true crime, why women seem so attracted to this genre in particular, how our consumption of these stories impacts the ways that we show up in the world, and what justice really means in a world that's addicted to punishment. And I genuinely know y'all are going to love hearing Olivia's thoughts. As always, before hopping in, though, I'd like to share a content warning that this conversation contains descriptions of physical assault and references to sexual violence. Please take care while listening. I'm Celicia Stanton, and you're listening to Truer Crime. for joining us today to kind of chat about your book and true crime and the ethics of true crime. So if you want to maybe take a second and kind of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are. My name is Olivia Gatwood. I'm a writer. I wrote a book kind of about my relationship to true crime, true crime as a media sensation, true crime as a way of coping, true crime, you know, and, and its many flaws and merits a couple years ago called Life of the Party. So yeah, I'm a poet and novelist and screenwriter and other things. So Life of the Party, I really enjoyed the book. They're just like really great work. And, you know, if you could talk a little bit more about like, how did you come up with the idea for this book? Like, how do you kind of go about exploring the themes and what is the main theme that you're kind of going over in in the book? 
I'd always been interested in true crime, but I didn't really have the language for for what that meant. I, I just sort of knew that I'd always gravitated towards those stories. You know, I don't know if it was like, I, I just was drawn to them. I was drawn to specifically stories about young women. And then I started learning about like the culture of specifically women obsessed with true crime by way of my favorite murder. I don't even know how I'd heard about it, but I just hadn't realized that there was like a whole community of women that were obsessed with this thing. And so I went through this phase where I was really binging it because I had never heard people talk about true crime in that way. I was always just like reading the CBS news articles or whatever. I'd never really heard it just sort of talked about colloquially. So I was listening to it a bunch and then I started to notice how deeply it was affecting me. Simultaneously, I was living in Boston. I was living in a first floor apartment and all of a sudden, like I was so incredibly paranoid in a way that I never had been before. I had a roommate, but she wasn't there that often. So I was kind of alone and I'd lived in big cities before, you know, like I did not grow up sheltered is like, it was so, it was kind of strange to be that nervous. And I realized like, oh, this thing that I'm consuming is really affecting me. It's like really messing with my understanding of what is fear and what is paranoia. But at the same time, it was like hard to discount my own fear because I was listening to all these true stories, you know, and it was like, well, maybe this is actually just, you know, research. Maybe this is actually what it's like. So anyway, I started to really pick apart this fear and then I decided to start writing about it. So that's how the book kind of came to be as I went into like this deep investigation into my life to figure out what of my fear was a product of true crime, what of it was a product of my own trauma, what of it was rational and warranted, and what of it was actually just like a really sensationalized version of like essentially white supremacist misogynistic media. And so I just kind of did a deep dive and that's how Life of the Party happened. I feel like what you've described is something that like a lot of folks can relate to. Probably a lot of the listeners of True Crime can relate to this obsession, this binging. Do you have any idea about like kind of where your own personal motivation to like once you start, you kind of can't stop listening and, and consuming it comes from? Yeah. You know, I think it's a combination of things. I think that on a really basic level, people are drawn to suspense. You know, I think that's why we go see action movies and horror movies. I think on some level, it's that. I think on another level, there's a way that it's sort of like a really twisted version of feeling represented. I think when you are specifically a girl and so much of your life has been spent either being told the ways that you need to prevent being murdered or being told that that's even a risk at all, you know, learning that you need to cover your drink and learning that you need to share your location and all of these like kind of subtle ways of people telling you, hey, you know, like your life is in danger because other people, you know, want to kill you. I think that there's a way that true crime media can feel really validating in a certain way because you're like, oh, I'm seeing this story that I've been afraid of and rehearsing in my head get played out. And, you know, that's not to say that that's helpful, but I do think that some of it was that for me was like seeing these fears that I felt like only I had and seeing them 
in real life in these like extremely tragic circumstances was terrifying and validating. And I don't know, I don't want to use the word cathartic because it's someone else's death, but it was, there was something about it that, you know, it's weird when people tell you that you need to cover your drink, but then they tell you you're being paranoid about X, Y, Z, like that's a very disorienting experience. So I think in that way, it can feel validating. Yeah. And I think, you know, even the word cathartic isn't something that I'm like, I've heard a lot of people use that word to kind of describe it. And then they're like, oh, whoa, I feel a little weird about saying that. I feel a little gross about saying that. But I think there's definitely something to that. I mean, in my own experience too, I was a victim of a financial crime about almost exactly a year ago. And that is kind of, I had always consumed true crime, but really led me in down like the rabbit hole of like consuming it constantly. That sort of like obsessive binging. You know, I think a lot of a lot of folks can relate to the fact of like their own violence they've experienced in their own life. And maybe there's some kind of draw to that piece. But I think what you're talking about actually leads to one of the questions I wanted to ask you, but it will require me to read a little passage to you from your book. Is that cool? Yeah, that's lovely. So in your poem, Ode to My Favorite Murder, you end with this following stanza. My favorite murders are the ones I can place my own body into as easy as an ad lib who sit on the shelf like volumes of an almost complete encyclopedia. All that's missing is the section on my name. And I really wanted to talk about this passage because in the introduction, you write this part, which I'm also going to read to you, which is, if true crime sought to confront the reality of violence against women, it would not rely so heavily on fear-mongering narratives of cisgender white girls falling victim to men of color. Instead, it would acknowledge that indigenous women experience the highest rates of homicide, often at the hands of white men. It would depict the stories of the several transgender women murdered each month or the countless black, brown, and indigenous women who have gone missing without so much as an investigation. I kind of thought that the, you know, that poem and that piece of that poem, and then this piece in the introduction, really, both of them sit at this interesting place. And I was curious that when you were writing the book, how did you engage with this tension between wanting to hear these stories that reflected your own experience, your own identity, and knowing that these stories are also like this really small piece of the puzzle, a fraction of the actual reality of what violence in this country looks like? Yeah. You know, I think that's what I was wrestling with for, you know, the entirety of writing the book. And I don't think that I ultimately came to an answer because I think it's really complex. You know, I think that I feel like if we're talking about identity, I am represented in true crime, right? Like I'm a cis white woman who in many cases presents as straight. And so there was this way that like, I realized I was consuming this media very, almost very comfortably because I was represented in it. But then there was this other side where it was like, well, wait a second, you know, these stories actually don't reflect the place that I grew up. You know, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where stories about indigenous women being murdered are frequent, where, you know, when I was 17, the remains of 11 women were found on the Mesa and all of them were black and brown sex workers. And so I was grappling with this thing of like, wow, okay, I'm consuming this media that I'm represented in, but it actually doesn't represent what I've seen with my own eyes, right? And it's like, so it's this battle between reality and what's being fed to you. And I think when I started to really focus on that, it became so glaring, not just how specific the 
quite frankly, racist the media was around it in terms of what they chose to publicly grieve, but also the, the so much of the coded language that was used to tell people whether or not they should be grieving. So, you know, those black and brown sex workers in Albuquerque that were murdered, there was so much language that was signifying, you know, these women didn't matter. These women didn't want to be found. Literally, a policeman said, sometimes women don't want to be found, which is such an insane statement to me. And then when white women who look like me were, you know, missing, there was all this language about beauty and intellect. And so... I think that I just started to realize that the genre of true crime as it stands in terms of who is producing it on a larger scale is not actually a genre that seeks to illuminate violence against women. Really what it does is it seeks to perpetuate this trope of white women as precious and prized beings. And so I think the last stanza of Ode to My Favorite Murder is grappling with that idea of I'm consuming these stories that I can fit my own body into, right? These stories that, you know, I'm seeing these girls and it's like, okay, here, like this girl, you know, whatever, resembles me in this way. And I'm imagining myself in her shoes, but then that's like so far from my own life experience in terms of the women that I've lost in my own life. So I just was constantly wrestling with that and wrestling with the fact that I was consuming a genre that ultimately was was actually fairly harmful. When you were consuming all of this true crime, like during this period where you were like binging it and feeling kind of like, you know, listening to it so much, did you feel like it took you a little while to like realize like that tension or did you start out listening to it feeling like, oh, you know, this is just another form of entertainment. And then as you listened to it, it was only once you started to have like a physical reaction an emotional reaction, this paranoia that you started to kind of realize, oh, wait, the, the stories that are being depicted aren't actually very representative of what the reality looks like. I think it was a little bit later. I think on some level, I always knew that. I think on some level, it's like I knew that like the Jean Benet Ramseys of the world were not, like I said, like I didn't grow up seeing that in my real life. So it was like I knew on some level that that was not real life or that that was not the majority. But I think it took me a while to recognize the real emotional impact it was having. And I think a lot of the reason I binged it when I found my favorite murder was partially because I was suddenly hearing stories that felt more representative. You know, I felt like they were covering the West Mesa murders, which were the women in Albuquerque. And that was like so wild to hear because I had grown up knowing that story, but didn't hear about it on a national scale at all. And so I suddenly felt like there were these stories being told. And so I think that's why I binged it. And then it was just this cycle of yeah, I think it took a while for me to to realize the impact. And you mentioned that, you know, in growing up in Albuquerque, you had this murder that you then that then was covered on I, I think it's been covered on multiple podcasts now at this point. Do you feel like when you were growing up and it was big news in the community that you were in that that was something that people were talking about in any kind of critical way? Or obviously, you know, you, you gave some examples of folks who definitely were not talking about it in a critical way, but do you feel like you were engaging with people in your community about it? Or did it just sort of feel like, oh, this wild thing happened? Yeah. It did not feel like it was talked about that critically, except for by the families, honestly. You know, I was 16. So this was, I think, 2007. And it was before Twitter, before like I didn't consume media the way I consume media now. So maybe people were talking about it critically and I just wasn't exposed to those conversations. But 
from what I gathered, it really did impact our reality as teenage girls because we did all hang out in this one specific area where those women were picked up. But then there was all this language that was like, no, 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 you won't, you won't be a victim, right? Because, you know, you're not a sex worker. Of course, they didn't use the word sex worker then. So it was this weird thing. And also the women had gone missing, you know, almost two decades before. And so they had been gone for so long that there was this other feeling that like, oh, it was over, you know, this thing happened a long time ago. But the only people that I really ever heard saying, why were these women missing for two decades? And why are they, why is this just being talked about were the families? Because I think that there was a lot, there was of course an outcry, but so much of the outcry was around this like kind of boogeyman idea of like, oh, he's still out there. But there was very little conversation I thought or from what I remember around socioeconomics, uh, racial disparities, like, you know, sex work in general. I, I don't think there, it was very politicized. Definitely. And I think true crime is so impactful to how, how we see ourselves in the world. But I think also the media around true crimes that are currently happening is really impactful as well. And, you know, you kind of tackle this in one of your, in one of your um, pieces, which was the one on John Bonet Ramsey, Murder of a Little Beauty. And I thought that the way that you constructed that poem was super interesting because, it, you know, you wrote that it was including lines from People Magazine's 1997 coverage of her murder. So I'm just really, I'd love to know a little bit about like, are all the lines from the poem from People Magazine? How did you kind of come up with that perspective? And what did you sort of learn throughout that process? One thing that really started to become so apparent was, like I said before, the coded language, the language that tells you how much grief you should reserve for this woman, right? And there's so much of it. It's truly, it's unreal when you start to look at it, like how quickly they mention if she was beautiful, how quickly they mention if she was popular. Like, I mean, it's like, it's so without a photo, you could fully gather, you know, who these women were and how much a white supremacist world values them. Right. And so I wanted to really not just pay note to the fact that true crime was doing this, but the real use of these words. And so doing what's called a found poem, where I take lines from a specific article felt like the most complimentary way to do that, to really showcase it. So I'd say 95% of the phrases in there are, I think there's one line that's not a line from the article. So these are all from one article. One article. So it's People Magazine's cover story about JonBenet Ramsey. The article was called Murder of a Little Beauty. And I think the only line is that's not from it is like, she needs a tiara for us to mourn her, I think. But I think what I also did was made sure every word I used was in the article. So not every phrase, but every word. And most of it are phrases. I forget what the poem is, but there was, it was wild. Like just even how much like, beyond just prioritizing her as a young, white, commercially beautiful girl, they were also like sexualizing this young child. And so I wanted to write it as a nursery rhyme to like really bring out the child element of it. So I am, you know, I had in my head this imagination of like girls playing double Dutch and singing it and being like, you know, little Miss Christmas dead in the basement, that sort of thing. And so that was a really fun one to write. I, and I mean fun and that it was exciting to get creative with form like that. And what kind of led you to pick 
Jean Benet Ramsey. Obviously, it's a it's a huge story in in like the true crime world. But but what kind of stuck out about that story to you? You know, I thought it was it would be easily recognizable to most people. So it wasn't a more obscure case that like only true crime fans would know about. I wanted to reach more people than just that. To be honest, like Life of the Party was a time in my life. I'm actually not that deep of a true crime nerd. Like I actually don't know. People are always bringing up cases to me that I'm like, I actually don't know like where that happened or what that was, or I'm really actually just kind of bad at homework, but I like don't have an encyclopedic mind. Anyway, I chose that because I wanted it to be have like widely reachable. I wanted people reading it to still be able to get the idea because it felt really important. And so I didn't want to lose them for mentioning a, a more obscure case. I also, it happened in Boulder. And so it was very talked about when I was growing up because it was in the state next door. I remember it vividly. Like I was so young and I remember maybe not, I don't know if it was when it happened or a few years later, but I just remember like being her age when she was murdered and just being told this story, like really viscerally. So it had always been stuck in my brain for that reason. Another person that you talk about throughout the book that stuck out to me because I hadn't heard of them before, hadn't heard that their the story was Eileen Wuornos and that you know inspired multiple poems that you wrote in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about like who she is and like what about her story kind of inspired the pieces that you wrote? Yeah. Oh, that's so wild that you hadn't heard of her. That's exciting. Eileen Wuornos was kind of seen as one of the more prolific women serial killers. They made a very, what I thought was a really empathetic biopic about her starring Charlize Theron called Monster. And I think it's actually like a really kind of beautiful telling. I I haven't watched it recently, too recently, but from what I remember, I, I feel like usually Hollywood would maybe do something really bad with that. And, and I remember thinking, oh no, this actually goes into the depths of her humanity. But essentially she was a sex worker who was a victim her entire life of just really intense abuse from men in her life and ultimately ended up murdering, I think, eight men. She shot and killed eight men and then was executed on death row in Florida. But I felt like Eileen Warnos embodied kind of every role in the book. So she was a murderer, but she was also a victim. She was a woman who murdered. She was also a murdered woman because she was executed by the state, which I do consider murder. And she was a victim of sex abuse and she was a queer woman. So I just felt like she she was had this played this interesting role in in the story I was telling where she kind of like did everything, right? And I found myself, the more that I learned about her, just having so much empathy for her. You know, I think that when she was on death row, she said, eight men tried to kill me or eight men tried to rape me. So I killed eight men. If a hundred men had tried to rape me, I would have killed a hundred. And, you know, her sanity was questioned at the end there. And she, but it's also like, how could someone's sanity not be questioned when they're on death row? But I just think that her story was really complicated. Her motivations were really complicated. And and yeah, I just wanted to give her her moment. Yeah. And she, like you were saying, embodies so much of the book and, and you know, these different pieces of it and a central theme of the book being violence against women. And I often think about, you know, in our culture, we have this really specific conception of what true crime is. And then other things that, you know, might 
kind of be in the same in the same world are usually considered like political or historical or like social justice. They're siloed separate. So things like gang violence, drug related killings, police killings, state genocide, war crimes. And these are basically left out of the genre and a lot of true crime media altogether. You talk about this a little bit with the Eileen Warnos piece, right? Because you say that her death penalty sentence was a state murder. So did you think about what we consider true crime and what we don't consider true crime while you're writing the book? And if you did, like, how did that influence the writing of it? Yeah, I think that the book's general focus is on true crime's relationship to violence against women. And so I think most of my focus was on that. But absolutely, I mean, I think I have in more recent years have started to really refine, but for, I think, a long time have identified as an abolitionist. I don't advocate for prison. I don't advocate for incarceration. And I firmly believe in restorative justice practices. And I think that it's interesting because I think that's often framed as like an antagonist to true crime. In some ways it is. I think it's really complicated when people are like, well, wait a second, like I'm listening to all these stories about how I'm in danger, but then I can't call the cops. And I get that, but I also think it's so interesting how the carceral system is such a perpetrator of true crime. And like you said, it's, it's crimes that aren't considered true crime because they weren't, I don't know, committed by like a quote unquote civilian or something. They were supposedly justified because they happened under a legal context, which is so arbitrary, but it's so fascinating when you look at how really, truly like how many police murders there are every year, how many police play major roles in violent rapes. It's so in line to be an abolitionist when you're thinking about true crime, but I understand why it actually gets talked about as really contrary. So anyway, I did think a lot about that. And I started reading this book called The Feminist and the Sex Offender. That's all about how to navigate those two things, how to like mitigate those two things and makes a really clear cut argument for why being a feminist means also being an abolitionist, why advocating for the end of a carceral system is advocating for the liberation of all people. And so I think it's really interesting that true crime leaves out the crimes of the state. I don't think it's a surprising or a coincidence, but it is absolutely noticeable. (laughs) Were you an abolitionist when you wrote the book? And are you still now? Is that what you had said? Yeah, I certainly have more refined language and and knowledge now. But yes, when I went into writing the book, I knew that I've always been pretty adamant about finding other solutions to calling the police. That was like very drilled into me growing up. So, you know, I think that I did go into it with that understanding. But as I came out of it and I started actually having, I had to grapple with it a lot more, you know, and that actually is like one of the really glaring things about some of these podcasts that claim to be sort of like feminist true crime podcasts is like people are cheering when people get the death penalty. And it like, I find it to be very twisted because I think that's murder. Did you feel like as you were listening to so much true crime that it was challenging your beliefs in abolition at all? Like, did you ever have trouble reconciling that? I know you said you were reading this book, which kind of helps reconcile these two things, but like was consuming a ton of true crime kind of pushing you to like question some of your beliefs? Honestly, no, it definitely did push me to have to learn how to articulate my feelings around it. It pushed me to develop 
more clearer arguments. But for me, the argument for abolition has always been so incredibly precise. There's so many beautiful minds that are contributing to that thought. And I just find that the research, the philosophies, all of it feels so clear to me. I really do believe that that is a path towards safer communities. That actually was never challenged. What was challenged was my ability to to answer, you know. And in these moments, because you kind of talk about it, you know, like in Ode to My Favorite Murder and throughout the book, kind of this sense of fear that you had developed out of listening to so much true crime. In those moments, like in the actual moments where you were feeling paranoid of like, oh, what if this were to happen? Or what if this person standing next to me, you know, were to, you know, try to attack me or follow me or anything like that? Did you ever like feel in in your mind like you had options? Like coming from like an abolitionist thought, right? It's like, okay, who helps you in that situation? Like, what was your kind of plan for your own safety and well being? I can't say that I always had a plan because I'm, I have that thing where I'm like, if you plan for it, then it's going to (laughs) happen. So I'm kind of stupid about that. But I will say I've actually never, I don't think told this story publicly, but it feels too on the nose to not. So a few years before, like two years before I was living in Minneapolis and it was my last night in town. I'd been living there for about two months and I'd done a show and, and I drove home and it was pretty late at night. And I was staying with my friend and I pulled up outside of his house and I saw a man in front of me holding a crowbar. And he had clearly been kind of breaking into the car in front of me. And I'm going to be honest, like, I don't give a about property crime. Like, I don't care. I don't think that it's like, I understand it's deeply inconvenient to have your car stolen and not everyone can afford that. I totally get that. But like, I'm not going to like call the cops on someone who's breaking into a car. And I'm certainly not going to get involved. And maybe that makes me a bad citizen. I don't know, but I just don't care that much. And so I saw him, I saw what he was doing, but I had to get into my house and he didn't look like he was interested in me. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get out of my car. I'm going to say good evening and I'm going to keep going. And so I opened and, you know, in retrospect, it's like, maybe don't get out of your car if you see a dude with a crowbar. You know, I think sometimes when we make people feel like they're being unsafe. It makes situations more unsafe. So I just wanted to like normalize it. I mean, like this isn't my neighborhood. Like, so I got out of the car and he within a second somehow was climbing on top of me. It was like one second I'm getting out of the car. The next second he's pushing me back into the car with his crowbar climbing on top of me, like saying a bunch of really vulgar stuff, right? Like physically attacking me. And I just started fighting back very intensely. I, you know, somehow like truly it's such a blur, but shoved him off of me. Then next thing I knew we were like playing tug of war with my car door. And then finally I got it shut. He was like screaming profanities and I drove off. Shortly before that, Philando Castell had been murdered by the police in Minneapolis. And I already knew that calling the police was... At at the very least, then I was like, that's something reserved for really extreme situations. That felt like an extreme situation. And I was like, I cannot call the police because if the police come to this predominantly black neighborhood, a white woman calls on the phone and says she was attacked by a man with a crowbar, 15 of these are going to show up. And the violence that could come of that to someone who's a passerby, like I just was like, that felt so much more violent than what that man had done to me, to be honest. 
that I didn't, I was like, no, I'm not doing that. So I ended up driving to my friend's house who I knew was having a house party. And I got a group of guys to just escort me back home, like literally just drive outside. When I got to my house, the man was still outside of my house. So that was nice that I had a group of boys to literally just watch me walk inside. And, you know, it's like on some level you could be like, oh, but now that man could go hurt someone else. But it was just so clear to me that like the violence that would be caused on if I had called the police was just so much greater than what had just happened. And I'm not saying other people need to do that. I'm not trying to be holier than thou, but like, it just was so clear. It was like, no, this is the clearly right thing to do is find another way. It was like, what do I need right now? I need to get in my house. How am I going to get to do that? Oh, if someone walks me there, like that's what I need. And I can't call the police and ask them just to do that because they won't just do that. And I wish they'd just do that, but they won't just do that. So anyway, that's a long way of saying I don't remember what, but it was an interesting moment where you're, I think it's easy to talk about the things you believe, but it was a moment where my politics were really put into question. I was lucky to learn that out of fight, flight, and freeze, I'm, I fight, you know, and then it was fine. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. And also I'm really, I'm, I'm sorry that happened. That's a very scary experience. And I think what's interesting kind of about what you were saying about this moment where it's like, you know, this traumatic, scary thing happens. It is the moment where your beliefs are kind of put to the test of like, what are you going to do? But I think for a lot of folks is they're like stuck in positions, right? Something like this may happen. And we're not given the tools to know, like, what are my alternatives? Or perhaps you don't even have like resources to explore some of those alternatives, right? So like in your case, you had some friends and stuff like thankfully who were able to kind of help you get what you needed, but you know how the world could look so different if the resources existed within our communities where, you know, there was a number you could call and you could, you know, be escorted or get access to counseling. And maybe somebody would go and talk to the guy, not violently arrest him, but actually, you know, try to help with his own healing and restoration. So I think, you know, in some ways it's like sometimes individual people have these abilities to sort of circumvent the traditional path of calling the police. But I feel like a lot of folks, their hang up with abolition is like, well, what am I supposed to do in a scary situation? And like, you know, Olivia may have done that, but I, I couldn't do that. I don't have the resources to do that. I, I, you know, I wouldn't be able to think like that in that moment. And I feel like that's where it, it would be so helpful, you know, if the state, if the government could provide some resources to help sort of facilitate that process. I think in my own experience as a crime victim, I always, I've been saying, you know, since, since this happened, that it was like the greatest test to my own political thought. So, um, and just like to give kind of a brief idea last fall, I found out that my financial advisor had been stealing all of the money that I had invested with him and all the money that everybody had invested with him. It was, it was super wild. And in my circumstance, it was really interesting because it was one of these moments of like, okay, what do I need in this moment? What do I need? Well, I was like, I need my money back. Right. But the only, the only option for getting that money back would be to engage with this system, the system that is like violent and that I don't always agree with and that isn't victim-centered. And the other thing is that since this was a federal crime, the government was going to be pursuing charges against this person no matter what. So it was either like, you're going to be a part of this and maybe if we get any of the money back, you'll get some of the money back or you're not going to be a part of it and that's fine too. 
And so, you know, I think it's really wild because what ultimately ended up happening was he pled guilty. He was sentenced to recently this summer, it all actually happened pretty remarkably quickly sentenced to like seven years in prison, which is, you know, where he is right now. And I was, I always think about like, wow, how wild it would be if the money that we used to incarcerate this person for seven years in an environment, which is, you know, violent and toxic. And I don't believe he's going to come out of the other end, you know, having necessarily healed from whatever caused him to, to take the actions he took. So what if we had taken the money that we used to lock him up and instead redistributed that that money to the actual victims of his crimes, you know, but like our government doesn't give us those options to to explore these alternatives. So I think, you know, especially in some of these cases of of murder and things like that, it's like so difficult because it's like on one hand, you want victims and their families to be able to like have peace in whatever ways they can try to obtain peace. And the systems that we're given are so they're just so antithetical to that. They, they create this like idea of justice, which feels like not actual justice. And it's just interesting because I think in true crime, justice is such a huge theme, right? It's like clapping when someone gets the death penalty. It's like this sense of like, okay, they got what was coming to them. This is justice served. Do you feel like that concept of justice is something that actually can exist in this current society that we live in? Is that something that you explored in the book at all? Do you kind of consider in your own experiences of violence and like what that would look like to you? Yeah, justice is complicated. I feel a little like that's kind of a tainted word at this point. You know, I know it's a word in the phrase restorative justice that I just used, but I guess I feel like I don't trust our national understanding of that word, because so often it's like, if it's not legal justice, then it's like, you know, there's this, I mean, growing up, it's like, there was this talk about like, oh, if someone who got, who rapes women goes to prison, like they're going to get raped there and that's justice. So it's like, you know, it's like that, that's, there's this idea that if it's not legal justice, then it's like physical justice or like just violent justice. That doesn't feel like justice to me most definition, most times people use that word, it doesn't feel like justice to me. I don't really know what justice feels like either. You know, maybe that's because I've never really felt it. I mean, when I was 16, I like led a class action lawsuit against my employer for sexual harassment, which sounds more heroic than it was. Truthfully, I was like 16 and just like, couldn't go to work because this man was such a creep and like scared me and ended up going to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission because I was going to quit and I was like, I need to get on unemployment. And there was this rad lawyer there that was like, oh, what's going on? Like, oh, we need to get more women. We ended up getting 19 women to testify. And it took five years, but we were all compensated financially, but it's like, which was great. And, you know, paid my rent in Brooklyn for like a year and a half, which was amazing and was very helpful. But at the same time, he was signing and sending my checks to my address. They gave him my address. He did not lose his job. He still owns that business. And there's almost no public write-ups of it. You know, his business is thriving. And so like, I don't know what justice is. You know, I don't think he learned anything. I think he's probably bitter, which is why I was so scared that he had my address. So I'm not sure. I think I just really believe in rehabilitation. I do. I believe that like, people who are violent are often victims of violence. And I don't think further victimizing them to violence makes them safer. So I guess if that's the goal, then justice is sort of like 
irrelevant at that point, you know? Justice is such a personal thing. Justice is so like, well, what are you going to do to make me feel better? And I guess I'm not that interested in that. I'm in therapy, you know, like I'm doing my own thing. It's like, what are we going to do to make sure this person does not cause any more harm, right? And I don't believe sending someone away does that. Yeah. One thing I I think about a lot is how I feel like a lot of true crime is very reactive. It's okay. This happened. How do we react to it? And a lot of times that reaction is to like, you know, have more fear. Don't trust anybody. Be hypervigilant, you know, call the police whenever that's their job instead of sort of root level or like restorative or just wanting or preventative. That's the word I'm looking for of, okay, this thing happened. We can give these folks the the tools and resources they need to hopefully help them in their process of healing. But how can we ensure that we live in a a society and a community where this isn't going to happen again? And I think that that would be really interesting if true crime could could engage with that idea of prevention that more deeply looks at the causes of, of these crimes in the first place. I just had a couple last questions for you too. And one of my big questions was, obviously you've finished this book, it's out in the world. Is there anything now kind of like looking back on it that you're like, oh, I wish I had done differently or, you know, I wish I had engaged with this more or anything that, you know, you kind of reflected on since publishing the book? Yeah. Thank you for asking that. Totally. I mean, I think that one thing to note is like when a person writes a book, it's a snapshot into a moment in their lives and it's not the entirety of who they are. And it's also not necessarily lasting. Right. So like pretty shortly after coming out with the book or really finishing the book, I basically stopped consuming true crime altogether. I just wasn't really that interested in it. I'm kind of back to it now, but I just, yeah, I just kind of stopped and I'd gotten sort of overwhelmed with the genre as a whole. And in addition to that, I'll be real honest with you here. Like, you know, when you write a book about that's very thematic, you are subject, of course, understandably to a ton of conversations about that theme. And I just started finding that like, I was kind of starting to be in these conversations with people, you know, honestly, like, white women that were really kind of rallying around the cops as heroes and how scary, you know, the world is and all this stuff. And I just like, I felt like some of those conversations were not as nuanced as I wanted them to be. And and luckily I was often the center of those conversations having been interviewed about my book so I could reroute them and guide them. But I started to wonder, you know, like if these are the conversations that you're being subjected to and that you're being a part of, like, does that mean that you didn't write the book thoroughly enough, right? Or that you didn't dive into these ideas enough? Because if people are walking away from it still thinking this way, or maybe not just still thinking this way, but at the very least, it's like, I'd even be down if they just passionately disagreed with me, but I'm like, maybe I wasn't clear enough, right? And I think I wasn't. I think there were some ways I was a little nervous about how to navigate talking about it. There were some ways I didn't know how to talk about it in the realm of poems. I also think that on another level, like abolition aside, writing about violence against women really intensively for two years was really harmful to my mental health. It took me a long time to recover from it. And that is something that looking back, I wish I would have known more. 
that when you dive into writing a book, you're diving into a world and a headspace. And so, you know, it's a snapshot of how my brain was working in 2017, you know, when I was 25. And I'm proud of it as that. But I think that in retrospect, yeah, I think I could have dove in a little more to to not just my relationship to true crime, but my real qualms with it, which I think I say here and there, but it would have maybe been interesting to to go into that more. Obviously, there are there are a lot of poems that kind of discuss your own reaction that you had to listening to true crime, to reflecting on your own experiences of violence, all of that. And then, you know, that kind of can leave the door open for like engaging and interrogating those feelings in deep ways. And I feel like there is this sense amongst a lot of people who listen to a lot of true crime, consume a lot of true crime, especially women. And women are the primary consumers of true crime anyway, of like, okay, this is like, I can feel a sense of like relief that I've, I've related to. Okay. I'm not the only one that's like, this isn't just a, a, a weird obsession of mine. This is something that a lot of people are really into. And it kind of validates the internal dialogue, the fear, all of the those sorts of things. And then I feel like when that happens, then we don't really question, well, is that feeling like, what is that doing in my life? How is that impacting the ways in which I'm showing up with other, other people and all of that? So I, I definitely think that that's something that is interesting. I'm like thinking about my own conception of, of true crime. And it's like, okay, to some extent, all true crime media is is a form of entertainment. And I feel like that's something that is uncomfortable. That's an un- uncomfortable truth because who likes to be like, yeah, I consume people's trauma for my own entertainment. But I mean, there's an element of that. And then it's like, okay, whose stories are we talking about? And what are the systems that shape it and all of that? And it all ties together. And I think these really nuanced ways that you know would be awesome to have more conversations about in all true crime media. Are you working on new projects now? Tell us where people can find you, all of that good stuff. Yeah, I have a novel coming out next fall called Whoever You Are, Honey. It is largely about, you know, women's relationships to one another, specifically in the setting of Silicon Valley. So I just finished writing that, and that's been a really hard and fun process. It's been a nice relief from writing about my own traumas to kind of getting to be more creative. I just finished my first screenplay that I wrote with my partner. It's an adaptation of a French novella. So that is exciting. And then there will be more on that publicly. And now I'm in the process of adapting my novel as well for the screen. So I'm working on a lot. And it's all very exciting. And, you know, I'm on all the social medias as my name. So Olivia Gatwood. So that was my conversation with Olivia. If you like what you heard and you're interested in more bonus conversations like this or in just supporting the show for $5 a month, you can sign up for our Patreon community. We've tried out lots of different things over the past few months from reflecting on the creation of the Darlie Rudier episode to delving deeper into the history we didn't have time to cover on our main episodes. If any of that sounds intriguing to you, or if you just want Truer Crime to be a sustainable show, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash truercrimepod. Thank you so, so much for listening, for sharing, for reviewing, for joining the Patreon community. It all means a lot to me, and it wouldn't be possible without y'all. See you next season.